Radioactive plugs you into the community weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones, and your support means Radioactive can keep passing the mic to people and nonprofits making a difference, like Fridays for Future Climate Strikers. Uproot the system basically means that we want to reorganize and drastically change the political, social, and economic systems. Radiothon starts October 29th. Help us to keep plugging you into the community by making your donation online at krcl.org. This is Sue Robbins, and today is National Coming Out Day. This is not a day where anyone has to come out as we come out at a time of our own choosing. But if your child comes out to you, remember to lead with love and acceptance. For a list of LGBTQ friendly resources, visit krcl.org. Remember, we see you, we hear you, and we love everyday people just like you. Sly and the Family Stone, a little everyday people from Sue Robbins. And I'm coming out from Shovels and Rope. It is National Coming Out Day, folks. I'm Laura Jones. This is Radioactive, and you can check tonight's show notes for a list of coming out resources here in our community. Today also is Indigenous Peoples Day. And still to come this hour during Radioactive, David John of Pandos, peaceful advocates for Native dialogue and organizing support, a Utah nonprofit. He's arranged for us to speak with water protector Red Fawn Janice, who spent 57 months in prison after her No Dapple protest, and another friend of his, Cheryl Angel, a Lakota spiritual activist and water protector, former spokesperson and occupant of Sacred Stone Camp at Standing Rock. She'll share her own family's history with the Indian boarding school system. When we come back, Maurice Mosmith of the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. Hi, I'm Brian Kelm. Since March of 1980, I've been bringing you the best in this great American musical art form we call the blues, every Monday night at 8 on the Red, White, and Blues program. Tune in for artists like the Kings, B.B., Freddie, and Albert, and Albert Collins to Etta Homesick or Elmore James, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of blues, old and new. That's Red, White, and Blues every Monday night at 8, only on 90.9 FM KRCL. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, plugging you into the community by passing the microphone to folks and a playlist to match. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, 
and it was also the Boston Marathon. I reached my next guest yesterday via Zoom as he was preparing to join the crowd of runners. Yate Abene. Hello, good morning. My name is Maurice Mo Smith. I'm a member of the Navajo Nation. I serve as the executive director of the Urban Indian Center Salt Lake. Mo, uh, as we record this, you're in Boston for the 125th Boston Marathon, which would have run in April and postponed it to October 11th, and then realized, you know what? There might be an issue with that date. And they've declared in Boston that uh, October 11th is Indigenous Peoples Day, as we've started to see that, as we've started to see that happen across the country. So, why are you in Boston today? I'm in Boston today to run the historic race that will probably never be run on this particular day going forward. As you mentioned, the race is typically for the, the, the 124th races that preceded uh, tomorrow's run uh, is typically in April. And so um, running on a day such as the Indigenous Peoples Day in, this, in Boston is what they call one of the top four. You got New York, Chicago, London, and Paris are the kind of like the granddaddies of the, uh, the marathon. And for me, as a personal and professional runner that has his roots tied in indigenous running and in the capacity that I serve as the executive director for an urban Indian organization that provides primary health care, behavioral health with wraparound programs that are culturally based and culturally comprehensive. This seemed like something that just where all the stars aligned. Uh, historic memorable day and it's a bucket list for me it's something that it's not just um, professionally personal but something that I've always wanted to uh, experience maybe not to win the race but to endure the race and what it all entails one of the ways that the Boston Marathon has tried to address this is by working with indigenous groups locally and I'm guessing uh, across the country honoring uh, runners. They are facing potential disruption uh, of the race as people want to draw attention to the historic mistreatment of indigenous people in our country. What are your thoughts as you as we record this, you're preparing to run the race. What are your thoughts about how Americans as a whole can direct their attention on Indigenous Peoples Day to the issues, uh, the causes, um, the mistreatment, and the rectification of those issues in our country? Yeah, that's a really good question. And precedence has been established and set. And what I mean by that is I had the wonderful opportunity in year 2000 to witness Kathy Freeman from Australia win the Olympic gold medal, not only for the country of Australia, but she came in with the, into the Olympic arena holding two flags, her Aboriginal flag and her um, uh, flag that represented the country of Australia. Why that was significant at that time, and I didn't realize how powerful it was, is that it was a, she was running to not honor just her nation or country, but her people that endured the wrongdoing over, over hundreds of years as Aboriginal people. And that was symbolic of, recon, of reconciliation. If you can recall, that term kept being said, this is a run of reconciliation. 
sports, the Olympic movement, when you look at Pierre de Coubertin, I used to work for the Olympic Committee years ago. What global sports does is it brings people together and it unifies people and to create change, to create hope, but through sport. And when you look at the Boston Marathon, I mean, the first woman to run was in the Boston Marathon. And a lot of people don't realize that there was an imposter that women were in, into the late 70s were not allowed to run the Boston Marathon. So, so not only did there been indigenous injustices and in that running is symbolic of bringing people to unify to really address common causes and concerns, but it also had to relate to gender equity. And so when you look, so to answer your question, what I do is I've, I, I've, I've had a wonderful career that has taken me globally. And as a member of the Navajo Nation, who as American Indian, Alaska Canadians, which serves our constitutional definition, we're Diné, is how we refer to ourselves. There's a lot of other indigenous people globally that are really, uh, that come together through reconciliation and through celebration and through sport. And so that's what I look at the Boston Marathon, the BAA, they've been great uh, on, on so many fronts is to recognize uh, that uh, as indigenous people, this is important for us. Now, as I look at your Facebook page for the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, I see that you have an In the Steps of Our Ancestors running group at uh, Liberty Park, I believe it is, every Monday. Tell me about that and why you started that up. Well, I think it starts with, uh, I'm, I, I'm fortunate to have a talented staff. We have 45 staff uh, with cross-representation from native to non-native, male to female. And so when you look at the work we do at the Urban Indian Center Salt Lake, uh, we try to focus on traditional approaches to wellness. And as an indigenous people and as a native person, we think running is medicine. So we initially started off calling it running medicine. And we know what those, um, what you derive from running. People talk about that runner's high, those endorphins that are uh, into the body and, and it's a management system. It's a way of a common life. And so there's so many holistic uh, properties to running and the tradition of running. So that's why it started is based on uh, the, the roots and the history of, of Native people, what running means. Running for the lower 48, our tribal brothers and sisters in the lower 48, they ran for ceremony. My tribe, we have the uh, Canalde run, the women's pu puberty ceremony run. Um, in the 19 pueblos of New Mexico, you have uh, uh, Pope, who was the message carrier from the Pueblo Pueblo during the Pueblo Revolt. And so running for um, for me, it was for ceremony, it's for way of life. It's also, when you look at recently, uh, the administration has expanded the, uh, the uh, Bears Ears uh, uh, monument, preserve it, expand it, that what led to that was not just a, uh, an act of an executive order, but also an act of resiliency and demonstration, the prayer run from Bears Ear to Salt Lake, so it's also looked at as how do we create change in our community? That's the if. So not necessarily from the political standpoint, but from the the wellness perspective is why we started the running group. In fact, let's slide in a clip or two from the signing ceremony 
last Friday with Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland and President Joe Biden. Today's announcement, it's not just about national monuments. It's about this administration centering the voices of indigenous people and affirming the shared stewardship of this landscape with tribal nations. The president's actions today writes a new chapter that embraces indigenous knowledge, ensures tribal leadership has a seat at the table, and demonstrates that by working together, we can build a brighter future for all of us. We have much more good work ahead. Together, we will tell a more complete story of America. Together, we will conserve and protect our lands and ocean for people, for wildlife, for the climate. Together, we will strengthen our economy with healthy, resilient natural systems. I'm grateful to the tribal nation leaders and both those who are here with us today and those who are unable to join us. Today, I'm proud to announce the protection and expansion of three of the most treasured national monuments, our most treasured. Based on powers granted to the president under the Antiquities Act, first used more than a century ago by Teddy Roosevelt, first Bears National Monument in Utah. This is the first national monument in the country to be established at the request of federally recognized tribes and uh, a place of healing as was spoken by the secretary, a place of reverence, a sacred homeland to hundreds of generations of native peoples. The last administration reduced the size by 85%, leaving vulnerable more than 1 million acres of cherished landscape. Today, I'm, we shall surely be signing a proclamation to fully restore the boundaries of Bears Ears. And second, I'm uh, restoring Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument place of unique and extraordinary ge geology as well as biodiversity, established as a national monument 25 years ago this month. <clears throat> Over the last quarter century, this land has produced a significant scientific discoveries per acre than more than any other national monument, everything from fossils to ancient indigenous artifacts. And once again, the last administration cut the size of the monument nearly in half stripping away more than 800,000 protected acres. Today, I'm signing a proclamation to restore it to its full glory. And by the way, I might add, as a matter of courtesy, I spoke with <clears throat> both the senators from Utah. They were, they didn't agree with what I was doing, but they were gracious and polite about it. And I appreciate that as well. President Joe Biden and Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, courtesy of C-SPAN coverage of the signing restoring Bears Ears, Grand Staircase, Escalante, and other national monuments that were reduced in size under the previous administration. I'm guessing that announcement, good news to everyone at the Urban Indian Center, Mo. Exactly. Um, you know, and running means so many things to so many people. And, and, I, and I always tell uh, we as Native people, we're, we're open to have uh, opinions and thoughts. But when you look at the consistency of indigenous running, and that's a key word, indigenous running, because people ran for different things. It's symbolic and uh, um, why we run today, not just for the health properties. And, you know, we're, we're all coming out of the COVID uh, uh, hibernation, so to speak. And so... Uh, there were a lot of us that wanted to continue to run and do something positive for not just for ourselves physically, but the, the, 
mental aspect as well. Well, and the beauty of doing it at Liberty Park means that folks can join you no matter their indigenous status. And it happens every Monday morning at 8 a.m. And where do you where do you meet up at Liberty Park? Well, the location is has uh, changed from place to place, but uh, uh, I think it's the I believe it's the south side is where it's at now, the south the south side of the, uh, the park. Excellent. We'll put a link in our show notes um, to uh, share the word of that. But I also wanted to talk briefly with you about the services of the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake and its history in our community since 1974, I believe, is the Indian Walk-In Center, Maurice. That's correct. We have over 40 years of history in the community of Salt Lake. A lot of people uh, refer and, and recall it being as the Indian Walking Center. In fact, uh, I remember it yeah. going to concerts. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm new to the community uh, by way of, of Milwaukee, where I was serving as a, a leadership executive for a community health center there. And the opportunity to come to Salt Lake to expand our services and programs from an outreach and referral agency to limited service is a great honor and a wonderful opportunity, especially when you look at the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake, formerly known as the Indian Walking Center. It's the community that supports that history there. And so that's what's impressive for me is, is the longevity, where they started and where we're at today. And where we're at today is that we're limited service clinical services uh, with a network of community health centers. We have an MOU with the University of Utah College of Nursing. So our nurse practitioners are, are through a collaboration with the U. And so we're only, we're excited, but we're looking to the future of, of becoming a full comprehensive ambulatory community health center. What does that going to entail and how can our listeners, the community, support the center? Well, I think there's a couple of ways is when you look at what's happening in the what they call the ballpark area, they're going through change. They're going they're trying to address the community. Uh, there's a community advocacy committee. They're looking at how do we keep the community safe, but we keep people in homes and housing. But we have a, a homeless or a. Uh, issue in that particular area. So there's a lot of issues that relate to the community. And I think to be active, to know that, uh, you know, we've got to support uh, proposals that come through the city for permits to get through so that we can expand. We don't want to change the integrity of the building. When people drive by and look at the agency, uh, a lot of people don't realize we do downstairs have clinical services, but at some point in time, we need to expand our programs and services into a new adjacent building, which we just purchased land right behind the 7-Eleven, where we're looking to uh, create a facility that will be totally de de dedicated to those services. But to your question, uh, financial support, go to our website. We take uh, donations. We're going to launch our new newsletter in uh, November, which is Native American Month. So we'll get that uh, information out. So not just that is the volunteering, the financial support, and then and in supporting your uh, your representatives, your council representatives to support uh, community health centers in a, in a local area. 
How has the center been doing throughout COVID? Uh, I see that you have vaccine clinics as well as testing available at the center for your clientele. The Urban Indian Center is a community health center, but we're also a federally qualified health center, FQHC. Uh, we're funded through Indian Health Services as an access point, but we do provide uh, vaccinations, uh, Pfizer, the Moderna, uh, by appointment. And we also... Um, give the flu. Uh, and we have a flu event coming up on the 29th of October called the Boo Flu. What we've done is we have partnered up with Salt Lake Community Health and vaccinations at no cost to anyone and everyone that come through uh, the Urban Indian Center. Again, it's called the Boo Flu. Get vaccinated, get your flu shot. This time, this will be the flu shot. Uh, and that's in partnership with the Salt Lake Community Health Center. You call it the the, um, the urban migration cycle. I think I read on your website mm-hmm. uh, the amount of folks moving from perhaps tribal lands uh, through the urban population. How many people do you approximately serve? Um, I mean, the population is much bigger than you you serve, but uh, can you give us some idea? You know, that's that's a good question. I don't know the exact answer. We know what statistical data and, and a lot of that inf- information that we're we're looking to get now is um, being developed by uh, um, centers like the Urban Indian Health Institute out of Seattle. That it's an epidemiology that focuses on um, data measurement, segmentation, and so forth. So I don't know the exact number, but you know, even if you take, we have over eight thousand what we call benefactors or natives that self-identify that reside in the Wasatch Front once they come and register for our services, which just means that all you have to do is, is show us your tribal enrollment and that you're a resident of the Greater Salt Lake, then you receive uh, services. So let's say there's 100 that come from tribal reservations that are surrounding. So you've got the Paiute, you've got the Koshu tribes, you've got Navajo. So what that means is you might have kids and uh, tribal members that have grown up on a reservation that aspire to come to college and or to work on, on an internship that come stay periodically need those services and they go back to the community. It could be seasonal. Uh, and it happens all over the US. When I was in Milwaukee, we had a lot, we had eight tribes that were, when you look at the state of Wisconsin that are located geographically north of Milwaukee and fishing season is a big season there for them uh, coming down to historically and so every every part of the country has some type of circular migration story where native and indigenous people came down to for for commerce for a a number of things by the time this airs the boston marathon will be over you have run (laughs) your race congratulations uh on finishing and uh, I hope it went well for you. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with here on Indig- on Indigenous Peoples Day? Yeah, I think Indigenous people they should be embraced and, and well understood and not misunderstood. And it just and it's global. It's hemispheric. When you look at uh, Indigenous people, uh, there are people in, uh, that I grew up uh, witnessing and embracing that uh, had their own. Uh, concerns and reasons why we as indigenous people 
do what we do. But I just think the only thing I, is to, to listen with an open heart and an open mind and to be compassionate. And that through violence, we lose the message. Mo Smith of the Urban Indian Center of Salt Lake. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the center, especially its Boo to the Flu clinic on October 29th. I'm Laura Jones, and coming up next, Dave John of Pandos and I talk with water protectors. The International Rescue Committee in Salt Lake City needs new or like new winter clothing for our newly arrived refugees, adults, and children as they resettle into our community. Find a list of needed items on our website, krcl.org. And thanks, y'all, for always helping out. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive, a show that plugs you into the community weeknights at 6. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day. Dave John of Pandos, peaceful advocates for Native dialogue and organizing support, a Utah nonprofit, arranged Zoom calls for Radioactive with two of his friends, both water protectors, to share their stories with us. Let's pass that microphone to Dave John first. I'm Dave John. I'm um, uh, from the Tewa uh, side. Half of me is Tewa and the other half is Dene. So from New Mexico and Arizona. Um, yeah, so I guess two natives into one. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, you've been on Radioactive many times over the years that I've had the privilege of, of being the executive producer and a host and Um, Got to know you through your activism with Pandos and Salt Lake City Air Protectors. And over the course of the pandemic, you have been doing some some great work trying to get resources to uh, Native American communities and onto the reservation for testing and PPE. So give us an update. Where are things uh, now at the end of the summer? Ah, well, where to begin? Um, I guess last that we kind of talked about was the uh, COVID-19 mobile testing unit. Uh, Update on that, uh, we got a mobile unit going out at uh, South Dakota in Rapid City uh, with the help of uh, Camp Mini Lizahan, Cheryl Angel, uh, Gene Roach, and the group out there. uh, Yeah, they put together uh, mobile unit out there at the camp too. So they were also testing the unsheltered relatives that they were helping in the camp there. Um, now that it, the testing is kind of gone and everybody's getting vaccinated, you know, we still have some uh, COVID testing kits. So we're still seeing if any tribes still need them or could use them. We're still willing to donate those testing kits. Um, yeah, then, um, well, we had to cancel our powwow. Uh, I was watching the numbers like a month before, and the numbers were low at the time, but as it got closer, the numbers started getting higher and jumping. Uh, so just for the safety for the Native community, uh, we decided to cancel it. Uh, due to how the Native community got hit by the first wave. And when was that supposed to have happened? When did you have to cancel that? Uh, We had that scheduled in September 24th and 25th. Uh, A lot of people were disappointed. Uh, A lot of people were looking forward to it. Uh, So hopefully next year uh, we'll be able to uh, start off again. So this will be our fourth annual for the third time, hopefully. (laughs) And then, 
Yeah. Uh, oh, also with the COVID too, I've been, our company, the company I work with, uh, there's a sub company that also started manufacturing ventilators. So I've been reaching out too to the tribes also to see if they might be able to use these uh, ventilators too. So that's another project in the works also. Uh, Red Fawn was uh, putting on a whoopila and that's a thank you like powwow to thank all the people that um, supported her through her four and a half years. Why don't you go ahead and introduce her? Oh uh, yeah, um, her name is Red Fawn Janice. Uh, she's from the Ogala Nation. And I met her at her Wupala powwow, uh, which we held the special. And to me, that went very well. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, uh, Red Fawn, she served 57 months, uh, kind of over four and a half years as a political prisoner uh, for uh, being a water protector up in Standing Rock, uh, fighting against No Dapple. Uh, so it was nice that we had her on uh, last November. Uh, she couldn't talk about certain things because of her trial date and stuff, but hopefully she might be able to answer or let fill us in on some details. Red Fawn, t- fill us in the timeline. How long have you been out? And tell us what you want people to know uh, on this day in particular about the work that you do uh, as a water protector and more. I'm a Dakiapi, um, Tigleshka Lutawi, Chintewashtewi, Maogalala Lakota, a woman from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. I was raised in Denver, Colorado by my Ina Troilin Yellowwood. Um, I grew up in the Colorado American Indian Movement and I was raised um, to stand up for what we believe in. I was raised up to stand up against all the wrongdoings against not only our people, but people as a human race, as a um, as a way of life, our spirituality. Um, my mom was a sun dancer and a pipe carrier, and she made sure that she instilled that even though we had urban upbringing. And um, that followed me all throughout my life. It led me to Standing Rock in 2016. My mom had passed away in June, and my grandma had passed away in March of 2016. And losing both of our matriarchal um pillars of our family was really hard for us and so it was kind of a crossroads in my life like do do I grieve in a healthy way or do I grieve in uh you know not so healthy way so it led me to Standing Rock I planned on being there for about a week and I ended up there until October 27th of 2016 which was the third time that I was arrested on the front line and led to federal charges and me being incarcerated for 57 months um someone that was camped within our family that uh, is a trusted part of our family in the American Indian movement um infiltrated our camp and made friends with me and I was at uh, I won't make excuses, but I, I feel like I was in a very vulnerable time in my life. And um, when I went to Standing Rock, I basically went with like a bag of clothes. And I went on August 8th and um, it became my home. And I was not, I was rarely at camp. I was mostly on the front line. Whenever Um, we first got there, the person, the people that I was with, they wanted to like be at camp. And I was just like, just go drop me off at the front line. You know, I didn't take my own car up there or anything. And 
I'd be sitting up there with brothers and sisters from, you know, all races and all nations. And, and it was really, uh, it was a really healing time for me. We got to take part in ceremonies. We got to take part in the water ceremonies and welcoming nations from all around the world. And, um, really making connections I got to meet you know wonderful people that um developed into my family that have supported not only me but each other all throughout everything our biggest um loss lately was Myron Dewey so rest in peace and power and prayer to his spirit and to his family and his loved ones um but we've lost a lot of water protectors and we do have brothers and sisters still on the front lines out there um, to pre protect lands from uranium mining, from pipelines. There was a, a pipeline leak uh, off the coast of California. These are all things that I carry near and dear to my heart uh, moving forward. And um, as I continue my sentence, I have three years on federal probation and it, my particular probation officer is, um, she's really adamant that I don't take place in any kind of protest, although I don't have any court orders or probation stipulation saying that I can't be a part of that. Um, she has made it uh, very clear that she doesn't want me to be a part of that. So uh, my main focus has been, uh, it was the Wopila powwow. I was able to do that um, Labor Day weekend. It came to me as an idea in June and I didn't know what I was doing, but with the help of like Dave John and so many other people that have been involved in the powwow circuit, it turned out really good. And I was able to feed the people in, in gratitude and to have a giveaway to bring our community together, which um, hasn't happened for quite some time. And it really kicked off the powwow season for Denver, Colorado. And I was really thankful that we were able to gather for those few days and, you know, really, uh, be in that space together it was a part of our healing moving forward and to express my gratitude um, which is our way of uh our way of life and our way of saying thank you when um when we when we have a hard time in life and there's so many people that support us dave was saying that there are things you felt you couldn't say before you um were sent away to prison and were doing your time and it sounds like you're probation and parole officer is placing some restrictions on you that you don't feel are reflected in the court orders that you must follow. So what is it you want people to know about being a Native American activist and how the government is treating you? Um, I feel that, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, there's a lot of input, but this is a journey that um, I think Tsongkhashila put me on. This is a, a path that has brought, brought me a lot of uh, healing into my life and without the infiltrator, without the federal government going up against us the way that they did, um, I wouldn't have learned and I wouldn't have become the person that I'm becoming today. And I wouldn't have been able to pass on the knowledge and the courage and the strength to my relatives that are on the front lines to never give up, to don't, don't live in fear. You know, this government can only do so much and I would do it all over again. <laughs> I would um, be up there on the front lines if necessary and when it's necessary, I will be. Um, I know that there's, uh, I know that there's a lot of people that were at Standing Rock that didn't get prosecuted. And, um, you know, their spirit was there, their help was there. There were people that were not Standing Rock that helped out. And so in a monumental way. So those are things that are I'm able to do at this time and will continue to do. Uh, my main focus moving forward isn't what happened in the past, but what's going to happen in the future, because everything that we do in this life is for our future generations. So me moving forward, I'm um, about to launch a, uh, 
talking circle for youth and young adults and hopefully um, integrate into that the Keepers of the Wisdom project that I've been dreaming about for quite some time and that'll revitalize relationships between our youth and our elders through ceremonies, um, language, cultural teachings, um, storytelling, et cetera, et cetera. In my, it'll be a grassroots uh, community organization revitalization project and uh, move forward from there. And in the meantime, just help any way that I can. You know, just keep the word out there that we have brothers and sisters on the front lines and it's imperative that we're there for them, that we support them. And then all the brothers and sisters that we have behind bars, you know, I have a nephew that's behind bars and he's 21 years old and he's having a hard time. And there's, you know, we have political prisoners that are still in there for doing life sentences. We have uh, entities, you know, putting out assassinations on like people that are whistleblowers, people that are bringing truth to light. And those are things that we're up against. Those are things that we're always going to be up against as long as we're bringing the truth to light. And I just suggest that you have no fear and know that your ancestors walk with you. And, you know, for those four years I was fed, I was housed and, you know, I wasn't in any intimate danger. So I'm thankful for that time away to sit down and to learn a lot about myself and about you know, the sacrifices that we make for our future generations, it's a small sacrifice. And, and I'm thankful that I was able to, you know, take part in that. But one thing about teaching the uh, children and getting the elders so they can learn, uh, that's one thing I liked about when Ames had those schools. And I hear Gene, you know, talk about them. And I think uh, the Native community really needs them everywhere. Uh, whatever tribe are in an area, I think, that would really uh, help out a lot because I think the government still has in their mind uh, what killed the Indian, saved the man. You know, I think that's still embedded in their mind, but they can't recognize that, you know, the indigenous are always going to be here no matter where they are on Turtle Island. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, yeah. Also, too, what do you think about um, as we got labeled eco-terrorists? <laughs> what do you think? What's your mindset on that? <laughs> so I think uh, a, way of, a way of looking at that is like when people are abusive or they're abusing their uh, position of power, they have to rationalize that by... Um, making us look like we're bad. And so it doesn't matter. And this is what I told the judge when I went to, um, when I was going through my case and I told the judge this, I said, you know, I know what I came to Standing Rock as. I know that I came here peaceful. I know that I took place in ceremonies. I know that. So my spiritual law knows that. And the white man's law wants to come and paint me here as someone that came and did all these bad things. and. Um, was responsible for shooting a gun while I have six cops on top of me. That's like, I'm sorry to say so vulgarly, but that's bullshit. And us being eco-terrorists, all we're asking is for the same respect that you give your money, give that to the land, give that to Mother Earth. I took, uh, I took a trip yesterday or the day before up into the mountains and we hiked to the top of the mountain and we were part, uh, we were able to go into this natural spring and it's a hot spring and it, it, um, we were there under the stars 
And that's, and I was so thankful and I cried because I was so thankful that I have that relationship with mother earth, that I'm aware of that love and that what she sustains us with that medicine. And, um, and so by being labeled eco terrorists, all that is just, it's just the way to justify what they're doing. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't minimalize what we are doing and who we are. And they can label us all they want to label us, but we know who we are. And that's where we need to learn to teach each other and le learn to teach them and open their eyes. So my biggest, my biggest thing moving forward is to plant seeds. Where there's nothing, plant those seeds, educate someone. You know, when someone's hateful, when someone's judgmental, you know, plant something good in their mind, plant something good in their heart. And it might not take place, but that's something you're planning there. And maybe in the future, that'll, they'll reflect on that and they'll be able to move in that direction somehow, some way. So label us what you want to label us. But I like to be labeled as a protector, not a protester, a protector, pr protector of all things sacred and of my future generations, because I have future generations that are gonna wanna go swimming, that are gonna wanna drink clean water, that are wanna, gonna wanna breathe fresh air. And if they're gonna be labeled eco-terrorists because of that, and they want that for their future generations, then so be it, because we know who we are. I'm an Ogallala Lakota. I know my bloodline. I know who I come from. I know where I am. And I'm gonna pass that on down. So that's oh, how yeah. I feel about that. Yeah, it's good to hear. Well, we are just about out of time, and Red Fawn, I wanted to extend the invitation to you to come back on the show when you get your new youth group up and running and bring some youth on and talk about whatever you want to talk about, okay? Oh, most definitely. I appreciate you, and I appreciate the invitation, Lauren. It was good to meet you and good to speak with you, and uh, <laughs> encouragement and strength, prayers to the people. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive. My co-host this hour is Dave John of Pandos. Next up, Dave and I pass the microphone one more time and meet another of his friends, a water protector who will share her own family's story with the Indian boarding school system. Dave, we have another guest that you've arranged to join us in our conversation for tonight's show. And let's pass that microphone over to Cheryl. Hi, Cheryl. Will you introduce yourself for us? My name is Cheryl Angel. I come from the um, land of uh, the Sacred Black Hills in South Dakota. We refer to it as um, the heart of everything that is. And so I'll be speaking from the heart today because um, I genuinely, sincerely um, appreciate um, the efforts being made to create venues for Indigenous people to speak. Um, the history of the United States hasn't been um, so great for us. And we have um, survived um, every tactic of, of genocide, genocidal policies to uh, remove us from our lands, to um, quiet our prayer, to um, remove our children. Um, so many um, hardships we've endured, but it's our, it's our recognition of each other as relatives that kept our families intact, that kept our communities safe. Um, so those are the things I want to talk about, about being a good relative um, moving forward, um, because that's what kept us together in the long run. This actually, um, as time is in, um, evolving, this short span of time that America has called itself a country really is in, in its infancy. 
and it's like going through its terrible twos. It uh, it was born um, not knowing um, the centuries of knowledge that indigenous people here on Turtle Island had gained living in harmony. Tens of thousands of years it took us um, for us to find a balance where we, where everything that was created, we recognized it as a relative. So from this day forward, everything I talk about um, is about being a good relative because that's how I wanted to be treated. I want to be treated like a good relative, you know, taken care of um, where my needs are a, a concern. Both you and Dave have used the phrase Turtle Island during this hour. And uh, for those that don't know, explain Turtle Island and what that means. Our perception of the earth is of a living earth. And the best rep representation of, of this landscape is Turtle Island because we have a story, an ancient story, because our knowledge is not 400 years old, 500 years old, you know, a thousand years old. It's tens of thousands of years old. And um, this story um, is very basic, but at the end of the story is that we were actually on a turtle shell. We're living on a turtle shell. And that during a catastrophe, this turtle was able to carry life on her back so we could survive um, an apocalyptic event, um, which many people are saying is we're headed for right now. And, uh, and that's another thing that we should be paying attention to because our behavior, our behavior here on the planet, uh, we've been, been such bad, bad occupants um, with our destructive activities and our, our need. Um, there's a handful of people um, their need to control everything, to have the most money um, is, I want to say an illness because only a small percentage of people are, are like that. And yet somehow this illness, this, this greediness um, has taken hold of the whole planet and uh, everybody wants it to be a little piece of it. Um, and that's, that's one of the major problems that we have is, is consumerism, capitalism. And then it's supported by white patriarchy and it's supported by a religious institutions that have had it wrong for since they were in since inception, I want to say. Um, because they don't treat everybody like a good relative. They don't recognize that the value, the, the spiritual value, the harmonic value, the um, everlasting value of keeping everything intact and in balance. Dave tells me that you're involved in uh, some of the repatriation of children that died in the Indian schools and in particularly around the Rosebud Reservation. Can you talk about that with us? Yeah, our youth took a trip um, to the East um, maybe five, six years ago. And they had requested, they wanted to stop at the Carlisle, um, it was called Industrial um, Residential School in Pennsylvania. And what they saw was a graveyard because that's um, army land and they had removed, um, they had uh, remodeled that, uh, that whole landscape and what was left was a cemetery. And so they were just looking at those graves and walking on that land, um, the energy from that land um, touched them. It went in through their feet, up through their body and it touched their heart. And they, they, they knew that they couldn't leave these children there. And so 
they did more research. Um, they worked with uh, our THPO program. They worked with, uh, I think it was the executive director of the, the alcohol um, and rehabilit rehabilitation program on the reservation in Rosebud. And over a course of five years, they wrote letters to the Army Corps. They said they wanted our relatives returned. That was a request. It took five years. Um, and in the end, um, I think 11, 11 children were returned. And it was uh, monumental. Um, they had ceremonies up there for them um, in their honor to prepare them. And then they made a historic journey all the way back to the reservation. And it was marked and honored with, with runners. Um, and they were um, treated with the dignity and the respect that, that they hadn't received mm -hmm. since they were buried. I mean, these children died wanting to go home. Parents were waiting for them to come home and they didn't. And it's such a heartbreaking such a heartbreaking thing, you know, to have to happen to a people, um, to children, and so yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, ending because they did come home, but it was really a hard, heartbreaking journey. Can you tell your story about your grandma and your mom and your aunts of what they went through and your your family story within the last year? Two of my sisters passed away and both of them, you know, went to residential boarding schools here in South Dakota. Um, my brother um, came to visit this weekend and I asked him about how it was for him when he was at Holy Rosary Mission because um, the indigenous, um, the International Indigenous Youth Council, the Lakota chapter, the Oglala uh, chapter, um, were actually um, we have demands for um, Holy Rosary Mission, which changed its name to Red Cloud. And I don't even think they had consent um, from the Red Cloud family to change that, uh, that mission, uh, mission's name to Red Cloud's name, because there's some people um, who say we never gave consent for a name to be used on that school because of, of its past history. But um, my mother um, was in a residential boarding school my brothers and sisters, and even me, I was in a residential boarding school. And uh, in the early 20s, uh, late 20s, early 30s, um, there was, you know, an influenza going around here. Maybe it was a second wave. I'm not sure. But my mother, my mother's mom, which would have been my, my grandma, my grandma and her two sisters, they both passed away. And they left orphans. And so my great-grandma, took them and uh, the government went to her and they took her her granddaughters and they put them in the Indian boarding school and there wasn't anything that she could do. And so when they had passed away, so they went to the boarding school and then they grew up and they each had a child. One had two children and, and then they passed away. And um, so, my, so my mom and her cousins were taken to their great grandma and um, actually to their grandmother and they um, they stayed there until they were taken too and my my mom was the youngest so she was taken last and my great-grandmother told my my or my grandmother told my mom she said they have already come before and they've taken um, children and there's nothing I can do to stop them 
they're going to come and they're going to take you. So I need to prepare you. Um, but that message was so heartbreaking to my mom because um, she had lost her mom. And the only thing good about that story is that when my mom got to the boarding school, her cousins were there. And that was her her only family she had because then her 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 grandmother passed away. And so she went back to the reservation. She didn't have aunties because they had passed away. She didn't have a grandmother because she passed away. But what she had was cousins. Um, cousins that, you know, are my aunties. And and they're my they're my connection to my culture and my history. And um, it was uh, that's how it was for a lot of people. The connection um, to our stories were cut off when our when our children were taken to boarding schools. They didn't hear the stories that all of our children heard during the winter time because they were gone. And this area here in Rapid City where I'm at, where the boarding school is located, it was surrounded by parents in their teepees and their relatives. And they, they, we have been here for, for, for such a long time. Um, it's really hard to live in this community now because the, the descendants of the gold miners who came and took this land, they're still here and they still want more resources and we're still resisting. And um, we have such a, a burden to carry and we have such a huge fight ahead of us. And, and it's crazy here in America because we're not the only ones that this is happening to. Indigenous people all over Turtle Island, um, the lands that they're living on are being attacked because they're their last fertile lands. Everything here is, is as fertile as, as it can possibly be until colonization comes, until mining happens, until oil and gas oil and lease companies come in, you know, until cattle come, you know, and overrun the prairie and, and eat our medicine and stomp it into the ground. And, you know, so the land is having a really difficult time, um, just as we are. So the land sustains us, we know that. So returning our land is really important. It's very important. Um, the indigenous returning our land. Yeah, so there's, there's a, um, a meme out there that says, what do you want, you know? Um, and what do you have to bring to the table? And there's, you know, um, indigenous people on one side and, and non-natives on the other. And one of the person says, um, we have everything that you want. You know, what do you bring to table? What do you bring to the table? It's like everything, everything that you want. And then the other meme is, um, what do you want? Well, we want our land back. We want everything back. We want our children back. We want the right to steward our lands. That's what my ultimate dream is, is for stewardship over federal lands and state parks and uh, sacrilegious places. I want all those places not only protected, but I want them steward stewarded by uh, the people who were chosen by creator to watch over those lands. And we weren't here randomly, we were chosen. And, and we don't forget that, our responsibility and being accountable to the land, we'll, we'll, we can never forget that. That's Cheryl Angel and Dave John. Check tonight's show notes to connect with Dave, Cheryl, Red Fawn, and Mo Smith from earlier in the hour. I'm Laura Jones, and this has been Radioactive, plugging you into the community with conversations and a playlist to match. And we have Radiothon starting October 29th. You can find out more about that and take a look at the Radioactive archives on our website, k
krcl.org. Democracy Now! coming up at 7. Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm at 8. Michelle's Night Train at 10.30. We're going out with a song suggested by Cheryl Angel. Ala June created this song for the Black Hills Unity Concert. And uh, she works with a group of elders. And, uh, and she helped organize um, that event. And you can look online and find the event. But it was the Black Hills Unity Concert. And it was to get the Black Hills returned to the people. You know, to the rightful owners. And so she wrote this song um, for that concert and for the return of the land. It's a beautiful song. All Nations Rise by Lila June on KRCL 90.9. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people. Oh, yeah. Rise up, all you warriors of love. All you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart. Can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up, wake up. All nations rise. Rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's our time. All nations rise, rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore, cause now's your time. We forgive you, Jasmine, for your